All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are so blessed today to have Linda Clyatt Wyman here, who is a renowned educator. She's a leader inside of the education space, and she has an unwavering belief in the potential of all children. She has used her decades of experience to move educational leaders from knowledge to practice in ways that are transforming children. She grew up in poverty in North Philadelphia, where she experienced firsthand the injustice perpetuated against poor students in their education, and as a result, vowed to dedicate her life to helping as many children escape poverty through education as she could. She has an extraordinary story where she not only has been uh, an assistant superintendent of high schools, but also a principal who stepped in and totally transformed the school that she walked into, changing test scores, changing the way that people inside of the school felt. And she is going to bless us today with some conversation around how we can pour into our children. Uh, beyond this, I'm gonna tell you right now, she has an unbelievable TED Talk that's been seen by more than two million human beings. She's been featured on Diane Sawyer's ABC News Tonight and Nightline, and she's got a book, Lead Fearlessly, Love Hard. It is beloved by educators. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Linda to the Rise Together podcast. Hi, David, how are you today? Oh, I am doing so well. Thank you for being here. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. For our listeners at home who may not be totally familiar with your work, could you help us out a little bit, introduce yourself and let them know a little bit about what it is that you do? Okay, my name is Linda Clyatt Wayman again. Um, I'm so happy to be here today, and I am a lifelong educator. It started a long time ago, my story of, of being involved in the education space. It actually started when I was around eight years old. When I was eight years old, uh, I grew up at a time when desegregation of schools were about to happen. And I remember when a gentleman walked down my street in the neighborhood and knocked on every door to ask all the parents would they allow their children to take part in the desegregation program. And that means bussing your children out of the neighborhood where they live to take an hour bus ride outside of the community in order for them to go to an integrated school. Everybody on the street where I lived said no. My mother was the only person that said yes. And the reason why she said yes was because in those days, we actually had to come home for lunch. And my mother actually worked an hour from where we lived. So what she used to do was actually catch the subway home for an hour, feed us lunch, and go back on the subway again. Well, of course, that was too much for my mother, so she volunteered to take us and send us in the in, um, desegregation program. But what I noticed, um, David, when I got there is that how different 
the education was. When I got there, I realized how much more the children in this particular space was learning um, different than where the schools where I lived. So when I was in high school, I decided I didn't want to be involved in the desegregation program anymore. And my mother let me go to a neighborhood school. And that's when I realized that the children in the neighborhood were not learning as much as the children were learning outside the neighborhood. So that's my story about why I got into education. And so I have dedicated my life for being 20 years as a teacher, a principal, an assistant superintendent. And now today I run a nonprofit and I go around the country talking about how important it is to educate all children correctly. So tell me this, when you took the position as principal at Strawberry Mansion in 2012, you were its fourth principal in four years. The school had been deemed low performing and persistently dangerous because of its dismal test scores, its frequent assaults and its arrests. Was, uh, this was a daunting task for any educator, but can you talk to me about those first weeks and months? What, were, what was it like coming into an environment where you knew there was a lot of work to try and turn it around? First of all, let me go back a little bit. I was assistant superintendent for high schools. And so when the district decided to merge three rival high schools into one, it was my job to find the next principal for Strawberry Mansion High School. And I could not find a principal anywhere in the country after two national searches to try to find a principal for this particular school because it was, of course, labeled persistently dangerous for five years without the merger. And everyone was afraid of this right, all three of these high, rival high school of students coming together, the rival community, bad gang problem, bad violence. And so everybody was afraid. So nobody wanted the school because I was the leader of those schools. I decided I had to leave my job to go in and take over Strawberry Mansion and leave this merger because they were my children and I could not let them go into this school alone. So when I got into the particular in this particular school and started working as principal, it, it really was, David, something I had never seen before, even though I had been a principal of two other schools, but I had never seen anything to the violence of this particular school. And I, 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 we were trying desperately to try to wrap our hands around what do we do here? So we had started having meetings with the students and I'll never forget the very first meeting that we had with the students and we were going over the rules and the new consequences and how we were going to set the school up. And, and this gentleman said to me, I don't know why you're telling us about your rules and your consequences. Don't you know we do what we want? And I kept replaying that in my head. We do what we want. We do what we want. Well, no wonder the school is out of control. If you have 550 kids walking around the building thinking they can do what they want. But the ultimate question was, why did they think that? Why did they think they could do that? So that was the first question. So then we started putting other things into practice and the violence still was not subsiding. And we were getting more and more concerned. And so we reached out to some friends, some friends actually at the Department of Justice. They offered to come in to work with us on a non, with a non-violence initiative. And so they came in and we started with an assembly program. We brought all the youngsters to the auditorium. Again, that was difficult because they had never been all together in the auditorium in a long time. So we finally got everybody settled in the auditorium. We started showing this program. And it was a non-violence program, but it was actually showing violence. So while we were looking at it, the teachers and I, 
we started to get very emotional. We started crying, tears were coming out of our eyes. But what we noticed, it had no effect on the children, none. And the person that was leading the program came over to me and said, Ms. Wayman, oh my God, this has never happened before, never. And so I said, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to pull some kids together and we're going to ask them why in the world is, is this, why is this not affecting them in any way? So we did that. We brought the students together. And one quiet little young woman said to me, oh, come on, Miss Wayman. You don't really think that's something, do you? We see that every night on the street where we live. We don't hope. We don't dream. Because we know nothing is going to change. Mm. And that's when we realized we were dealing with 550 children who were just hopeless. And we had to work day in and day out to end hopelessness. And that's what people don't understand, David, about children who live in inner city areas. They're so full of trauma, so full of hurt, so full of pain. And what sometimes with the news, you see children on the news, especially children of color, people think, oh, they're just violent. They're just violent. They're just mean. No, they're not violent. And they're not just mean. They're hurt. They have been left by, left behind by so many people. And so their behavior and what they do, it looks one way, but it's really something else. Unreal. I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, Tom Bilyeu, the other day, and he said something to the effect of uh, one of the things that keeps him up at night is this idea that a zip code could be a predetermining factor for the you know, longevity of life, the trajectory of life, and education obviously feels like it's at the core of how to you know, maybe start shifting some of what inevitably ends up being true in that, in that statement. Outside of education, were there other things that the community could have done or that the, the students need? You know, there's obviously a ton of need, but that could have helped complement the kind of work that you were trying to do inside, inside the school itself. Well, you got to remember, it was a very hurt community. You, these schools where they're located, high poverty, many of the, the, the parents are unemployed or they have jobs that really don't make much money. They are working as hard as they can. And so therefore the community often turn to the school for most of their support with their children. Yeah. And so the only way we really could get the, the community involved was to try to come up with activities that would expand out into the community. And that's what I was telling on um, the story before. One of the main things that we had to do in this community was to actually develop a football team. This school, can you believe it or not, David, was in this community for 50 years, 5-0, with no high school football team. So it was nothing for this community to rally around. So we knew we had to do something for the community around, rally around something to try to make a difference in this school. And that's what we started to do. And that's what we did do. But David, I'm going to tell you, it was an absolute fight. And that's what happened that would often happens in these schools. Everything that your child may have or all of your audience children may have, our children don't have. And we don't have them because we have to fight to get everything that they have. And we really should not have to fight that hard to have what everybody else has. Yeah. These kids want to go to school and have fun like everybody else. 
They just don't want to go to school and be policed and watched all of the time. They want to learn. They want to have fun. But there are a lot of systems, David, that is set up against that. So how, like the idea of like engineering hope in, in, a, in a hopeless community where they're, you know, hardened in some ways by having seen as many things as they have or um, question whether the things that other kids in other communities may believe are possible for them are even ever actually a possibility. How do you engineer hope? What advice would you give to parents or educators trying to reach children that are facing obstacles beyond their control, like the children you work with in Strawberry Mansions. I know this may sound harsh, but I would use the same slogan I would use on my teachers, on my children. So what, now what? It's a slogan I talk a lot about in my books. So what, now what? And I would often tell them in a very loving way, a very loving way, so what? this may have happened. So what? That might have happened. So what? Something else may have happened, but what are you going to do about it? And they would tell me stories, David, that I don't even want to mention on air about child abuse and sexual abuse, all types of abuse. And I had to get the children to see that all of those things were a part of their story. But was those situations going to take their whole life or were they going to use those situations to propel themselves forward, fuel for wanting a better life? And that's what I started to do every single day, have all high expectations for everything. They would come to school and tell me these really sad stories. Ms. Wayman, well, I couldn't come to school because make some of them are fathers and mothers because this happened with the baby. I tell them, okay, next time it happened with the baby, bring the baby to school or bring you behind the school. No excuses high expectations to make them understand. I would tell them, David, this is your childhood, but it doesn't have to be your adulthood. Mm. But it starts right here. Mm, That is a good line. You know, anyone and everyone who's listening, you have a story, you have a set of experiences, the weight that you have attached to it, the way that you have decided that your past is your future. That is as true for anyone listening as it is these kids. That's amazing. So what was, what is the outcome of the time that you have spent at Strawberry Mansions produced? Well, I was at Strawberry Mansions for five years. I'm I'm no longer there. Yep. I actually retired in 2017 after five years. Um, After when I left there, of course, we we were off to Persistently Dangerous. was my very first year there, and we had never returned to Persistently Dangerous again. The test scores rose every year, of course, slightly sometimes and, and more aggressive in other years. Very difficult to raise test scores when you're dealing with a system of children who many come to you unable to read in high school. That's a fact. So trying to get master's amount of kids to grade level is very, very difficult. So again, we had all kinds of activities, all types of sports. Most of the students went on to college. And so we had great success there at Strawberry Mansion. But your next question should be, David, your next question should be, what did they do when I walked out the building? What did they do when you walked out the building? They destroyed the school. And when I say they, I'm not talking about the children. Because, David, as principals, as a teacher, sometimes we don't understand underlining agendas. Sometimes we just don't know. We're working against a force. And this is where the systemic racism come in, David. Sometimes we're working against a force. We don't know what force we're working under. 
and we're working hard and working hard and working hard and we're thinking we're aiming for one thing when the, all the decision makers are aiming for something else. So it was a difficult ride. We did the best we could while we were there, but things did change when I left. Oh, uh, so sad. I did on a, on a nicer note, I, I read that Drake, the artist was so moved by a news report of your work at Strawberry Mansions that he donated funds to build a recording studio for music at the school. Feels like a place where hope might be generated. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about where and how that came from and anything you've heard of the kids' response? Well, the, well that is, I believe that's still there. Um, and that was just amazing. And that came about because Diane Sawyer decided to come to um, Strawberry Mansion to tape her Hidden America series. Um, and she decided to come in and try to find out what was going on with the violence. And actually Diane Soria was one of those people to say to me, Ms. Wayman, all of this violence is symptoms of poverty. It's not really what you see. It's really all symptoms of poverty. So after they aired that particular story, Drake saw the story. And wow, he, he actually called the school he sent people to the school to make sure the story was actually for real and true. And when he found out it was true, Drake not only donated a studio, he also donated uniforms for the entire school, sweatshirts for the entire school, because he realized that the building was always so cold. And he said, is the building always cold? And the building was always cold. So he brought sweatshirts and all types of things for kids. The music studio was still there. They produced great music out of the studio. Also, when Drake came to Philadelphia, he brought the entire school, the entire student body to his concert. A lot of people don't know that. Wow. He actually came downstairs, had a private conversation with my students, told them how special they were and how he expected them to be great. And that's what these kids need, David. They need people to encourage them along the way well, I, and I, do the right I, thing. I heard or read that you ended your morning announcements every day by saying, remember if no one told you that they loved you today, that I do and always will. Just that line in and of itself in a world where feeling loved and feeling seen and being told that unconditionally someone is there for you feels like a thing that is so necessary and needed for every human in an environment where maybe they're not getting it somewhere else, you know, I'm sure it was something that was just such a gift for each of them to at least know that there was someone who saw them and loved them. David, you know, and these are high school students. Remember, they are high school students. And so every day, and that was the one thing that I thought I needed to say in order to bring back hope to the school. Every morning, every afternoon, remember, if nobody told you they loved you today, you remember I do, and I always will. And sometimes when I was in a hurry, I would forget to say it. I would end the announcements because I was in a hurry and I would forget to say it. And the students would see me in the hallway and they would go, oh, Miss Wayman, you didn't say your line. I said, oh my goodness. And I would run back downstairs and I would make that statement. And I didn't really realize how powerful that statement was until one day they asked the students to write some things about me on a piece of paper. And a high school student said, I love Miss Wayman because she's the only person in my entire life who has ever told me she loved me. I was stunned by that because I had no idea that it was that important. Wow. I mean, here's the thing for anyone who's listening, if you're questioning if you personally can make a difference in the lives of anyone, here is someone who 
made a difference every single day to 520 students over the course of five years of time, changing the way that they were able to be recipients of love in an environment that was depriving them of it. You can do the same thing. Uh, just he hear this, be inspired by this. I know, I know that, you know, we know that children who experience trauma, it'll affect their brain, it'll affect their development for the rest of their lives. How would you help any of us who are listening to this, who've witnessed children who are experiencing or, or, or have experienced trauma uh, to show up better for them as parents or as educators? One thing that children in poverty, I mean, children that experience trauma, what they don't need, David, is pity. They need love. It's a difference between pity and love, right? So when you show up for them, that means you listened to them. Set, a time, set aside time to actually actively listen to what they have to say and respond to what they have to say. Children watch to see your response to what they say. And when there's no response, they actually believe you're not listening. And when they believe you're not listening, you can't really, really help them to gain that trust. Kids who are, who are traumatized, they look for people they can trust because trust with them have been broken so often. So they test you. And so they test you by actually telling you things to see if you actually heard them. And they only know you actually heard them because if you respond to it. If you never respond, you never heard them. And for them, they cannot trust you. Mm, that's good. One thing I love about your work is that you talk about eliminating excuses with your staff, right? Like this is hard work. You are leading people who are doing hard work and inevitably they may in fact be justified or righteous in having uh, an opinion of how hard it is or how they don't feel like they ought to have to deal with some of the things that they have to deal with. But when it comes to you holding them accountable, uh, it's something that I think it's a cornerstone of your leadership style, but also probably part of how you get the actual results. How, how, how do you want to, how, how do you, in holding your leaders accountable, hope to have it be part of the overall solution in an environment as hard as this? Well, you have to hold them accountable. And I would tell my teachers, we are all they have. We are all, we're, we're it. For a lot of our students, a lot of the parents were present and a lot of parents were not, but we were the only constant in their life. So what I would tell my teachers is, guys, listen, we are responsible for saving lives. That's, that's what we do. And so we also have to have a so what now what attitude. We also have to have that. Yes, the teacher before them didn't do this. The teacher before them didn't do that. Okay, I get it. I would tell them I get it. But now is our turn. And so we are not going to allow our kids to leave us without being able to do the best they can. I believe that all leaders, um, David, is supposed to be inspirational. If you can't inspire your teachers and your staff to do anything, then that's, that's you got to develop that in your leadership because people follow people. And so because I was always so optimistic and some days, don't get me wrong, David, I would get down too because I was like, oh my God, it's so hard. And sometimes I needed them to lift me up. But we looked at it, we were in it together because we cared that particular much. So they expected things from me, I expected things from them, and together 
we were able to uplift and hold each other up to deal with a difficult population that most people would have never been able to deal with. Wow. So right now, we obviously are living in crazy times with COVID having kids in lockdown. They're facing a lot of uncertainty about their education. Their social lives have been compromised. And as much as school, it, for so many kids, is a primary source of security, a primary source sometimes of food, uh, you know, a place where their esteem can be built. How, how do we show up for young people during this especially hard season where there's as much uncertainty as, as there is for what is um, a questionable return to school? Hopefully school mm -hmm. will return, but we don't know that for sure, um, especially mm -hmm. inside of uh, any of these cities where school is as important as it ends up being for providing food or providing you know, the kind of oasis, as it were, from some of the conditions that they are living inside of at home. How, how do we show up for them in unprecedented times? Well, we're struggling with that, David. Be honest with you, we're, we're really struggling, especially with kids who live in the inner city, especially kids who are living in poverty, because you have to remember, many of them don't have the internet. They don't have the luxury of going on Zoom like a lot of kids in the, in the suburbs get a chance to do. They don't have that luxury. A lot of them, they do, they are food deprived. We're doing okay on the food aspect because a lot of people are out there really trying to make sure they eat. But a lot of them, David, are not tuning in online to do the work that they're supposed to have. And that really frightens me. And so we're struggling with how to show up. And I'm gonna tell you another reason why we're struggling for how to show up. I watch the news all the time where a lot of teachers and administrators are actually going to their students' homes, staying six foot apart just to see them and wave to them. When you live in poverty, David, and you live in the inner city, the last thing they want to see is their teacher at their house. Mm. They don't want you to come to their homes. They don't want you to see a lot of times how they live. So in the inner city, we are struggling really bad. So the only way we really can show up, we have to continue to make an effort to try to phone them, text them, try to get them the internet, free internet service they could use. But I'm going to tell you, David, we're leaving a lot of children behind, and it is very frightening to me, very frightening to me that at the thought that we may not go to school in September, because you're talking about another year of education that these children are losing out on, children who are already behind. So it's, it's, it's heavy. There, there, there's, a, there's a rippling generational effect if the things that feel like they're compromising a return to normal end up extending for uh, too long. Uh, scary. Uh, God, let's hope that things open back up soon. I know it's not just quarantine that we are uh, pushing our way through. We're also in the midst, obviously, of a cultural reckoning spurred initially by the murder of George Floyd and then growing week by week with protests and civil action and calls for change. And adolescents and young adults are often at the forefront of this movement. But how do we, anyone who's listening right now, talk to our younger kids about these issues in a way that's both empathetic and developmentally appropriate and makes them have a sense of what's happening in a way that helps them appreciate the seriousness of the movement and, and the kind of change that maybe comes from a conversation starting young? Well, I think as parents, we have to watch our language. 
we have to watch what we say to children and in front of children. And we can't be hypocritical about it. Meaning when you sit your child down and talk to them about the importance of the moment, you have to have done, you have to have done your research on what it is. You can't bring a lot of your biases to the conversation. You have to look up the history, understand, at least try to be empathetic to what, the, what children of a different race is going through. I said, I always often say you can't be hypocritical because sometimes we want our children to behave one way, one way, and we're behaving another way. David, they listen to what we say, but they often listen to what we do. Yeah. And we can't say one thing to them and we and your children overhear you on the phone talking to your friends in another way. And that's actually what's happening. So we have to be careful about our language to children. We have to be careful how we talk to our own friends in casual situations around our children. And we have to do a lot of research before we sit our children down to talk about this difficult moment. Because there's a lot of things that a lot of people really just don't know themselves. So in order to be, in order to, be able to be honest over with their children, they have to do their research themselves that's good. and watch their own language. Yeah, that's good. There's obviously work left to do inside of inner cities, inside of education at large. It feels very big. And is a person who is sitting here in Austin, Texas, or for anyone who's listening at home, wonders, okay, what can I, what could I do? Is there something that I could do? Is there, is there something that anyone, myself or anyone who's listening, could do to become a participant in the progress that's necessary to take care of these kids and become advocates on their behalf? I think we, there's always something we all can do. And again, the one thing we can do is educate ourselves about the situation and really look to see what is all the outrage about. Some people really just don't know. What is all the outrage really about? Go and sit in and listen to your school board meetings. Pay attention to what's happening at the school board for your child and go to some of the neighboring counties that have inner cities and listen to their conversation at their school board meetings about really what's going on and try to be an ally for your kid and for kids who are different from who you are and from where you live. Speak up on their behalf. Send in the petitions to your congressman and to your city council about why are you doing that to your, that particular school? Why do we have something and they don't have something? Again, be informed, get in contact and touch with local, um, local politics to really find out what's going on in school and get involved that way. Yeah, the, 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 the world feels uh, so out of control at times that the, 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 the magic that can happen at the local level inside of politics or inside of a conversation with a school board uh, sometimes is lost on us as the place where we can most immediately dive in and help. But uh, it's also where many of many of the decisions that affect the actual practical, tactical on the ground things really take place. Linda, I'm so happy that you exist. Um, you know, you are, if nothing else, uh, I said it before, just an example of someone who uh, saw need, understood the way that your strengths could be applied to those needs, and took action to show up 
to fundamentally change the lives of the people that you served. And if there is a lesson uh, or, 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 or a calling for anyone who is listening, you know, know your strengths and believe that you just might be able to be that person that could apply those strengths to the needs of anything that exists inside of your local community in a way that affects the lives of other people. You, uh, you have people who have graduated college, you have people who will have different jobs, that will have different, more stable families. Like you, you have created generational rippling benefit on this planet because of your willingness to step into a space. And uh, I just, I wanna say thank you and I appreciate you for it. And I hope that it inspires others who listen to your story to do the very, very same thing. If, if someone was interested in getting to know you better inside of social or following any of the work that you do, is there a place that you could direct them so that they can uh, know you better, be inspired by you more? Well, what I'm doing now, I actually run a nonprofit. I'm a founder of a nonprofit uh, called Currently Trending. And what we do is we teach children how to navigate uh, difficult situations so they can learn. So in Philadelphia and, and all urban areas, we, they have to overcome a lot of obstacles in order to learn. And so we started a nonprofit to work with high school students um, starting in eighth grade follow them through four years of high school. We give everyone an individual coach, a caring adult to help them through high school and beyond. So if you really want to look into my work, you can follow me, look at my website at www.currently-trending.org and you'll see some of the work that we're doing. I would appreciate that. That's amazing. We will put that link in the show notes. So if you as a listener are interested in uh, diving into the work, being inspired by the work, supporting the work, please click that link. Linda, thank you so, so much. I appreciate you and appreciate you giving some time today to our listeners. You are a world changer and I hope that your inspiration will afford other people the opportunity to believe that they can in fact also change it themselves. So thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for having me, I appreciate it. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.